character is Mr. Bohannon, and he is a gunslinger, if you could not tell. This is how the, the show, Hell on Wheels, decides to introduce the whole show and this character. This is the first episode, and we see him in this confessional, and we see him taking justice into his own, own hands, right? So you learn a little bit later in the story that Mr. Bohannon was a confederate. The Civil War had just ended. He fought as a confederate, and when he was away at war, some Union soldiers came into his town and murdered his wife, and so now the whole show, as far as I can tell, is about him kind of fulfilling this vendetta and trying to find all of the soldiers that were involved in his wife's death and making justice and murdering them. Do you not believe in a higher power? Yes, sir. I wear it on my hip. Now, he sounded pretty awesome there, if we're honest, right? I mean, that was a good line. It was witty. I, I would have probably been impressed if he had said that to me. The problem is, for Christians, that line is nearly completely antithetical to the gospel. So if you've been paying attention so far to the film, to the scripture that was read earlier, you may be wondering, what in the world do these have to do with each other? And earlier this week, when I actually saw this for the first time, I would not have thought the two went together either. But I think that they do. So Psalm 33, as a songwriter myself and a worship leader, if you could not tell, I enjoy Psalm 33, right? You heard it. There's a lot of talk of singing a new song. There's talk of praising God, all these things that I do Sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, and oftentimes with you all. I enjoy it. However, now if we put up the slide that says music, gift, and power struggles. So I've always enjoyed this psalm, but I've also always wondered about verses 16 and 17. How is it that these verses connect and go together, right? seems to be about worship and war, or songwriting and army building, or something like that. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So let me say quickly here that when the psalmist says new song, I take him to actually be advising someone to make a new composition, to make some new music, a new song. And not everyone interprets it that way. Some people think it just means singing the same song based off of a new experience of grace from God, but I think he actually means a new song. And when I look at the other verses that talk about a new song in Scripture, it talks about it a few times in Psalms, in Isaiah, and then a couple times in Revelation, there's always actual music happening, and in Revelation even, the people don't know the song yet says they haven't heard it. It's actually a new song. So because of that, I think that there's this idea of making something new happening in this psalm, right? This idea of making a new song or a new thing for God and his glory based on his glory, right? And then the next verse underneath it, the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. 
it seems out of place, right? The theme, I think, of the whole psalm is worship, actually. But I think it's talking about a certain type of, of worshiping, a certain worshiping that comes with abandon and as gift. Um, now, these bottom verses about the king, I think these are talking about power. And power, what I'm going to describe it as right now, is seeking one's own advancement in one's own strength or seeking at all costs to maintain one's security, comfort, and way of life. And in this psalm, it seems like this type of power is antithetical to the type of worship that is abandoned and gift. So what I'm going to do now is I want to go into some more verses of Scripture that I think reinforce this theme and and this kind of story. So it's not just one that exists in this psalm, but it's in, I think, the consciousness of Israel who would be singing this psalm and then also later on played out in Jesus. Uh, But before I do that, let me say one thing that I want you to remember. So if you check out from this point on, which I would hope you don't do... um, Remember, remember these things, or at least remember these things and use them to kind of filter through what I'm saying on the whole. And that's this, that I think that faith frees us to create. I think that faith frees us to give. And I think that faith frees us to worship. So let's look in the scriptures. 1 Samuel 16.23. Now this is about David and Saul. Saul was king over Israel at this time. And David is this young man who Saul basically hired because Saul was having these fits of rage or anger or depression, all of these things. And he, so one of his men says, hire someone to play some songs to you, and I think you'll feel better. So he hires David. So here's the verse. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So when we think about power, music, worship, these sort of things, already we see the power in this lyre that David plays, which is the same instrument we're told to play in the psalm that we're talking about, to kind of help Saul, right? But don't forget that Saul is the one in control here. Saul has the power over David. He is the king, not David. All right, 1 Samuel 18, 5 through 12. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Again, Saul is the king. Saul has the power. Saul sends. So that Saul set him over the men at war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. So I'll stop there real quick, because again, what's going on here? Saul's the one in power. Saul's the king. These women sing this song, again a song and power, and Saul freaks out. Why are you singing this song about David killing more people than I have? I'm the king. Don't you realize that? But they sing, and it makes him angry. He was very angry. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. 
So Saul's aware. The only way this could get worse is if David gets the kingdom, if he gets my kingdom, and he's not going to get that. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So here again, all these themes keep coming up here, right? David is in the house. He's playing the lyre, the ten-stringed harp, and apparently he does this every day. Saul, so here's David, right, with the harp, however you hold a harp. And then Saul comes in with the spear. He has the spear in his hand, and he says a cool line, kind of like Mr. Bohannon in the film clip, right? He says, I'm going to pin you to the wall with this spear. And yet, which one wins out in this situation? Somehow David evades him twice with just his lyre. He has no spear, apparently. And at the end of it, Saul's actually afraid of David. Somehow his power is threatened by this music and because the Lord was on David. So I think these themes of power, gift, and music, and worship all kind of mixed together, they continue on, and we can see this in the whole Gospel of Matthew, but for time's sake, we'll just look at the beginning and the ending. So, Matthew 2, 1 through 16. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, again, heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod, who is the king in Israel right now, under Roman rule, he hears about this little baby that was born from these wise men who come from the east. And these wise men call this baby a king, and Herod freaks out. Already, he, he freaks out about a little baby who is a king who is encroaching on his power. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? Herod's going to worship baby Jesus. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Here we have worship. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gift. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So the wise men don't tell Herod where this baby Jesus is, and Herod freaks out. He freaks out to such a degree that he genocides, right, all these little children. I mean, do do you ever think about that? Sometimes when we read the Christmas story, 
I don't think we recognize that all of the babies, two years or older, are murdered by this man because he's scared of this little baby. So you have two, two kind of reactions early on. You have these wise men who aren't even Israelites, and they come because they somehow see the stars and recognize that this is the Messiah, and they come and they worship and they give gifts. And then you have Herod who does the exact opposite. He takes, he takes lives. He takes everyone's lives hoping to kill this baby. But as we know and we can be thankful for, he does not succeed. Now let's go to the end of the story, Matthew 26, 6 through 10, 12. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. People speculate and say that this was probably worth a year's worth of wages. This ointment was probably worth your salary for the year. And this woman broke her jar and poured it on this strange man's head. And the disciples are ticked off because they've been with Jesus for a while now and they know how much he wants to care for the poor. And they realize, you know what this could have been used for? Do you know how many poor could have been fed? Do you know how much wiser, how much smarter, how much more securely we could have used this perfume as money? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And then a couple verses later, what happens? Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So in the beginning of the story, there's a contrast between King Herod and these wise men. In the end, we have this woman who gives foolishly, we could say, and then Judas, who is supposed, who's hung out with Jesus for a long time now, he should get him, who takes. And he takes much less. He takes 30 shekels of silver, it tells us, to betray Jesus. I think this is interesting, and really I can kind of understand where Judas is coming from, right? He was looking for a Messiah. He was looking for someone to lead Israel out of Roman rule. So he's hanging out with Jesus. He sees some of Jesus' power. Jesus heals people. Jesus raises this man, Lazarus, from the dead. Jesus walks on water. He does all these crazy things. Surely Jesus will deliver them. This man has authority. This man has power. But what happens here is that now Judas's security is threatened. His power is threatened because Jesus says, I was anointed for burial. I'm about to die. And I think Judas freaks out and he realizes, okay, whatever security I can get, I'm not going to get it from Jesus. This man's about to die. I'm going to turn him in. I can at least get 30 shekels of silver. So power, hopefully we can see in these passages, is kind of opposed to the characters in these stories who are worshiping, at least as worship pertains to giving uh, and abandon. Now, I think this is because to worship or create with abandon is vulnerable and it's dangerous. It's dangerous in that our way of life, our power, so to speak, is challenged. 
people who see themselves as their own king and ruler with no higher power, ultimately in control, they don't do well with vulnerability. If they open themselves up to weakness, someone may, someone may come in. They may use that weakness and they may take over their power and they may have to change their life. All right. So this risk that I'm talking about, I think, correlates to making new songs or the risk of an artist. And it's also the risk of giving. So there's a quote here by an artist, and he says this. He says, a picture lives by companionship, expanding and quickening in the eyes of the sensitive observer. It dies by the same token. It is therefore a risky and unfeeling act to send it out into the world. How often it must be permanently impaired by the eyes of the vulgar and the cruelty of the impotent who would extend the affliction universally. So in fancy words, Mr. Rothko is essentially saying that to create and give a painting, he says, is very risky business because you don't know what people are going to do with it. You don't know what they're going to interpret it as. You don't know if they're going to like it, if they're going to hate it, if they're going to use it for means that you didn't want them to use it for. Now, I think while this does apply to painting, to creating anything and giving it to the world, it also applies to the simple act of giving a gift, which I think we can all relate to, right? So I'm going to ask something, and you can answer it. How many of you give money or gift cards as gifts? Now, I, I do it sometimes, too. And I think why that is is because... First off, it's convenient, right? You can get the money easily, right? It's convenient in that sense. But also, you're pretty much guaranteed that they're going to like it, right? Have you ever had anyone turn back money? I'm talking as a gift, not like, you know, like a birthday gift. No one's going to turn back money. Maybe someone who's very, you know, oh, I won't take your help, that sort of thing. But that's not what I'm talking about. So birthday gifts, so you take the money. It's easy to do, and I'm not saying that you should never do it, but I'm saying that there's a risk in giving. If you pick out a gift, if you pick out a sweater, your wife might not like it. If you, you know, make something, they might not like it. They might return it. or what. You never know what's going to happen with the gift. There's some risk in giving it, and uh, that's very similar in art. All right. Giving gifts, especially personal gifts, is risky. It's risky because it involves other people seeing us, Right? They can usually infer something from our gift or from our art about us. And usually it's a personal thing. And sometimes they can actually miss the thing that they think they see about us completely. I quoted from Mark Rothko. Let's talk about him for a second. Mark Rothko was a Latvian. He was a Jew who uh, immigrated at 10 years old to the United States in 1913. He went on and studied at Yale and dropped out. Um, And he's famous for these paintings that are now referred to anyways as multiforms. And you can see some pictures of them. They're huge, most of them. And that was because he wanted people to be kind of engulfed in them, to not feel like they could own it, like a tiny picture that they kind of, they're over it, but they were actually in it and subjected to it. And he used a lot of color. And what he said about color was this. He said he used it to express basic human emotions, tragedy, ecstasy, doom. The people who weep before my pictures are having the same religious experience I had when I painted them. The reason I say that is because he clearly had some sort of intention for his work, 
right? He had some sort of, even if it was loose, some sort of goal of what he wanted to happen when people engaged his photographs, or his paintings, I'm sorry. Uh, It also showed from his quote that he gets kind of upset when people interpret them wrongly, right? That quote we had earlier, he called people uh, whatever he said. It wasn't nice words, though. Um, So he cares. He cares about these things. Now, there's one picture, one of his, that uh, looks very happy. It's an orange painting. And because of that, people thought, oh, the warm color tone, this is a very optimistic painting. And he insisted over and over again, that this was about tragedy. And he, was, he thought tragedy was very important to his work, but some people thought, oh, how happy. And this upset him. An interesting story about Mr. Rothko. In 1959, he was commissioned to paint a series of works for a new restaurant that was opening up in New York. And it was in this new building that was made by uh, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who's a very famous architect, and this restaurant was supposed to be, like, awesome. It said uh, that uh, it was touted as the city's most lavish new eating house and playpen for the rich. So Rothko, Mark Rothko, was invited, commissioned, paid to make paintings for this restaurant. Okay. And he did it. He made them. He completed the paintings. But he confided to the editor of Harper's Magazine, and I- I'm going to say some of his words. Please don't be offended. Harper's Magazine, that the restaurant was, quote, a place where the richest bastards in New York will come to feed and show off, adding that he wanted to make them, quote, feel that they are trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up so that all they can do is butt their heads forever against the wall, end quote. (laughs) And that, quote, I hope to ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. So he had very clear intentions for his work for this restaurant. So what happens? He finished the paintings, right? This is what he does. He finishes them. I don't know what happened. He had some change of heart. And, and this is a lot of work to finish these paintings. They're huge, and I'm not, I can't remember how many he did. He goes to the people who commissioned him, and he gives them back the $35,000 in 1959 that they paid him to do this. And he says, you can't have the paintings. I'm not going to do it anymore. This is a lot of money for an artist today, $35,000. It's a lot of money for anyone in 1959. Now, what he did was he kept these paintings in storage for the next 10 years. And uh, in 1969, he released some of them to different galleries and museums. They got broken up. They weren't a whole set. I think the reason that he kept these is based on some of his earlier quotes. I think he, even though he had this intention, he was going to be so subversive with these paintings, I think he recognized that these people might just think, wow, these are cool paintings. Or, wow, I love the color black. It's my favorite color. He must have been thinking about me when he painted this. Or something like that. And I think that freaked him out. I think it crippled him, unable to do it. His story ends in sadness. In 1970, he was found in his studio, and he had uh, committed suicide. He overdosed on antidepressants and um, cut his wrists, and he was found in a big pool of blood by his studio assistant. On that exact same day, those murals that he painted for the restaurant arrived at the Tate Gallery in England. So on the day of his suicide, those paintings that I think caused him so much 
grief and confusion as an artist were now seen by the world. Uh, I think that's a very sad example of some of the risks that it takes to give, and you, whether you take them or not, and kind of as, an, as someone who your whole life is about giving something to the world, that can really freak you out, and I think it did for him. I have some lighter examples. I, I don't have tons of time, but uh, I'll do one song, right? Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Right, Bob Dylan, he uh, <laughs> wrote this song. And uh, people have assumed, and even more recently they put it in this movie, Dangerous Minds. People have assumed that this song is about drugs. And Bob Dylan, this song is about his search for psychedelic drugs. Mr. Tambourine Man is his drug dealer. So he kind of needs these things. So this interpretation gets promoted. Bob Dylan says, actually, this song is about the search for inspiration. And Mr. Tambourine Man is my friend Bruce, who plays the Turkish tambourine on my album. And he's inspired some of my songs. Right? So this is a little bit more lighthearted, but it's still, it does something to the artist. He risks, he makes this song. People might say, oh, you're a drug addict. You know? Uh, another one, right? Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Sounds super patriotic, right? Super So patriotic that uh, Ronald Reagan and Bob Dole use it for their campaigns. And in the case of Bob Dole, uh, Mr. Springsteen had to write a letter to him saying, please don't ever use my song again. Um, because A, I don't support you. But B, the song is actually very cynical of the American life. It's about... Vietnam vets coming back and not getting to be able to reintegrate it into community, not being cared for by their country, factories shutting down, on and on. And it's a sad, cynical song that unfortunately has what sounds like a happy chorus. So he's had much, uh, yeah, much pain over that song, I think. Not, not the, quite the pain of Mr. Rothko, <laughs> but at least upset. Right, so there's a risk. There's a risk involved in creating and giving anything. There's a risk involved in giving gifts. And that's what I want to be emphasized here. And this is why I think also it's opposed to power or trying to keep power. Because power usually does not like risks. Unless there's like, you know, whatever, 10 to 1, 30 to 1, 50 to 1, 100 to 1 odds. And then it's not much of a risk. You know you're pretty much going to get it. So the artist, the posture of the artist Cecilia Gonzalez-Andrew says, Artists are people who engage the world creatively with abandon and abundance. And that sounds really nice, right? But if Mark Rothko maybe wouldn't have had quite so much abandon, who knows if the story would be different, right? This sounds nice, but it's very dangerous to live that way in reality. It's dangerous and it's scary. So how is it that I'm going to advise us to live that way? Well... I think it's important now to re-emphasize verse 1 in the psalm. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So I don't think everyone should live this lifestyle. I think the psalmist is addressing a certain people, these who are righteous and upright, he uses the language. Now, righteousness in the Old Testament concerns in one way, the good ordering of creation by the creator who wills life and well-being so that to live righteously is to conform to the limits and requirements that the creator ordained. To be righteous, to be upright, is to see the world rightly as God sees it, 
And to do that, we must see God rightly for who he is. Now, in the psalm, if you noticed, it says to do these things, right? It says, sing a new song, play skillfully, worship God, essentially, for. So there's this for that happens next. This because, and then it lists all this stuff about who he is, what he's done in creation, how he's still ruling the world, how he sees you, how he cares for you, how he is God above us and God here with us. And because of that, we're freed up to create. We can risk. We can only be a people living with abandon when we become present to the truth that all of life rests gently in the hand of an abundantly loving God. I think that Ephesians 2.10 sums this up real quickly and real nicely. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are called God's poema, right? Sounds like poem, worksmanship, this masterpiece, some people say. We are God's great creation. So we should do good works. We should create things. We should make things. We should give things. We should be a positive influence in our world. But then the next line, God prepared beforehand. So God is is overseeing this. God is in charge. We can sit back and rest in moments knowing that there is indeed a higher power than the revolver on our hip. So the order of the psalm then becomes create and give, verse 2-3. But then the key phrase of why we can do that is because, and then we have these, these lines that I've kind of tried to sum up these things here. Sovereignly, he creates and gives. Sovereignly, he sees and cares, and he rules justly and generously. You can refer back to that in your psalm if you'd like. And then the final point, and I'm ending up here, I'm ending here, uh, is, is this idea of singing as hoping. Now, some of you may be coming here and you may say, okay, I can kind of get this when things are going really well in my life. I get that I should sing. I get that I should contribute. I get that I should create. I get that when things are going perfectly. But what about when it seems like things are pressing in on me and it doesn't make sense? It's not the most utilitarian use of my money to give. It's not the most utilitarian use of my time to write a poem or even to read a poem or listen to music. Um, Well, I think the hope for us here is that I think this psalm was actually written in a time of distress. The reason I say that is because of the language at the end of the psalm and also this whole inclusion of this talk of kings. Now, if things were going perfectly, I don't think that Israel would need to be advised, hey, the war horse is not going to save you. Hey, building up your army is not going to save you. Hey, great strength and great might, it won't save you. If things were going perfectly, I don't think they'd even have that thought. But I think that something was... was there was this pressure from Israel here from some of the surrounding nations, right? And again, the end verse, which you can see up there, it talks about hoping. It talks about God being our help and our shield. This is imagery. You usually don't talk about God being a shield if you don't feel like you need a shield. So this psalm, I think, encourages us to look, to look the tempting paths to security, no matter what they be, right? For us, it's probably not going to be trying to build our own personal army, right? But it may be uh, building our own personal bank account to huge extents, right? To feel safe, 
Well, this psalm encourages us to look at that and say, you are a false salvation. You are a lie. You're not going to give me safety. Instead, what do we do? We sing songs of a God who is truth, and in this singing, our hope is refreshed. In Christ, we have freedom to create. In faith, we are free to risk. We do not strive to continually secure a place for ourselves. This is a quote on the page, and I'll go ahead and read the whole thing by Alan Davis. Through the language of faithful worship, we come to see the world as it really is, the work of God's hand, the object of God's endlessly patient love. What is more, through praise, we come to a new perception of our own situation. We do not have to strive continually to secure a place for ourselves. That place has been provided. There is a basic reality on which we can rely. All God's doing is with faithfulness. In resting upon that reliability, in accepting the remarkable givenness of our place in this world, we find our happiness. And I would add, we find our freedom to create and our freedom to worship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being a God who is indeed sovereign over all that we see. The strange thing is, Lord, we actually have freedom in your rule and in your reign.